everyone, and welcome to Rooted in Resilience. Kayla, Ikram, and I were really excited to welcome Reverend James Harrison to our podcast today. Reverend James is an Episcopal priest, a chaplain in the United States Army, and a campus minister for multi-faith programs here at Boston College. In all three roles, he names his goal to be helping folks of all walks of life to see God how they see God, and helping them connect with the divine in their own unique and particular way. Today, we talk with him about his definition of resilience and how each of us, as well as our communities, are impacted by our diverse identities, such as our racial and faith identities. There is unity and resilience in our diversity. Let's embrace it and love it in ourselves and in others. As a BC alum, Reverend James has some great calls to action, so I encourage you all to listen up and uh, let's jump right in. So hello, Reverend James. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. We're very excited to have you. Um, we're going to start with our first question for you, which is just tell us a little bit about yourself, your story, the work you do now, and how you got here to BC. Sounds good. Thank you, um, y'all, for having me here on this podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm the Reverend James M. Hairston. I'm the campus minister for multi-faith programs here at Boston College. Uh, what I do is essentially I manage all the religious groups on campus and in managing them, I uh, provide them with the tools they need in order for them to worship in their own faith tradition. And I support if they have an affiliate campus minister and provide them with the tools they need as well in order for them to, to celebrate the rights and sacraments of their faith group. Mm. How I got here is an interesting story. Um, I'm a Boston <laughs> College alum. Mm. I graduated way back in 2004. And prior to me becoming um, a campus minister or an Episcopal priest, rather, um, I wrestled with faith a little bit and just trying to figure out where do I see myself in it. I grew up Baptist and in growing up in the Baptist tradition, it's a different experience, especially being black Baptist. It's a very different experience. So um, while I came to Boston College, I explored the Jesuit identity, the Jesuit values and really Catholicism in a very direct lens. Uh, being from Boston, it's um, a large Catholic population in Boston, but especially in the 80s and the 90s, it was very much divided by racial lines. Mm. If you were Black, it was assumed that you were either Baptist or Pentecostal. If you were white, it was assumed that you were Roman Catholic or Episcopalian. So my interactions with Roman, Roman Catholicism or even Episcopal Church were not existent or very limited as a child. And it wasn't until I came to Boston College where I got different exposure to Catholicism, especially through the Jesuit identity and the Jesuit lens. Mm. Um, so while I was here, I took a course called Intro to African-American Society through the sociology department and uh, what is now known as um, AADS. Mm -hmm. uh, back then it was Black Studies Department or Black Studies Program. And in that course, um, I learned a lot from the professor, Dr. Carrie Ann Rockamore. And from that point on, she asked me to do an independent study with her. And I did. And the independent study was at an Episcopal church in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. it, was a it is a predominantly Black, specifically Bahamian and Jamaican church. And the only people who weren't Bahamian and Jamaican was the rector who was African-American and a deacon who was white. And the study we were conducting was how come this church didn't have any white folks there. Mm. It's smack in um, Central Square, um, right down the street from Harvard, around MIT. But yet um, the, only white, the only white person there was the deacon. Mm. And it was a great study there. Um, I definitely learned a lot. And it was the first time I met a black priest of any kind um, mm -hmm. was there. And that's where I actually start seeing myself with doing liturgy and being exposed to it um, and that sort of thing. And I started exploring Episcopal Church a little bit more well after seminary. I went on to seminary um, shortly after 
doing a graduate degree after BC. So with the BC, taught for a couple of years in grad school, and then I went on to seminary. And it was time went on and started God, started wrestling with God a little bit about a calling to the ministry, a calling to the priesthood that I had since I was 12. And I eventually accepted it, stopped running. And <laughs> after I accepted a call, um, one thing that really hit me was the campus minister who held this position before me, mm. um, the Reverend Dr. How um, Howard McClendon. So Reverend McClendon and I would talk when I was a, when I was a freshman, a sophomore, a junior, just about wrestling with God and what God is telling me to do, as well as Father Jack Butler, our current vice president of University Mission and Ministry. Those were the two campus ministers I sought when I was here. And I remember right after I accepted a call to the ministry, listed to God's call after discerning all these years, starting seminary, I ran into um, Reverend Dr. McClendon. I said, listen, how can I get your job? Like, how can I be a campus minister at Boston College? And he was Baptist. Um, as a Baptist minister at Boston College. And he said to me very lovingly and um, very honestly, he pat me on the shoulder and said, my brother, I will either have to die or retire. Because <laughs> this is the only job here for me. Mm. And for that, um, fine, f- funny thing is, um, fast forward 10 years, he calls me up and tells me that he's retiring. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I applied for the job. That's and, awesome. um, God bestowed upon me to be here. So it's been it's been something that's been a true calling in my life, mm. especially in the multi-faith context. I'm also a chaplain in the United States Army, so I wear multiple hats. I'm a campus minister here. I'm an Episcopal priest. I have a parish out in Everett, Massachusetts, and I'm a chaplain in the United States Army. And the chaplaincy in the United States Army is very much similar to the chaplaincy here or the campus ministry here is that I'm interacting with folks from all walks of life. Mm. And that's something that really speaks to me. It really does. Just to be able to have folks see God how he or she or they see God. And my job is just kind of guide them in that process. It's not about conversion. I'm not trying to get you to believe Jesus or anything like that. My job is just to help walk with you as you see something bigger than yourself, as you connect with the divine. And it's something that I relish and I absolutely love it. So I hope that um, answers your question. Um, I try not to go too long because I know the podcast only goes but so long. (laughs) (laughs) No, that was perfect. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And um, just deeply moved. I think it's, we'll ask you later, call to actions for students, but I already hear one of like, you know, you don't always know what life's in store for you. And when you answer that call, you don't necessarily know where that call is going to take you. So even as someone who who is a man of God and serves God, you're wearing so many different hats and doing that in so many different ways. And that's just so cool. Thank you. Yeah. And so for our next question, going on the topic of our podcast as a whole, we wanted to ask, how do you define resilience? And when are times in your life when resilience has been important? I think the easiest definition, I had to scribble this down, because I'm wrestling <laughs> on my like, how do I define resilience? And for me, it's the ability to withstand life's storms, life's dark or unpleasant moments. Mm-hmm. Is what it is, the ability to understand life's storm, to withstand rather, life's storms, life's dark or unpleasant moments. Resiliency is something that we speak a lot about within the military context, um, for obvious reasons. Um, in terms of folks going off to war, their struggles um, while they're while they're in places of conflict, um, conflict within the political realm, conflict of trying to understand the mission that they're serving, and of course conflicts back at home, um, making sure that everybody's taken care of while they're while they may be in Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever they are. And I think it's quite apt now, especially what we see what's happening um, overseas now, um, and it's just incredibly sad what we see over what we see what's happening overseas. Yeah. 
So with that said, moments in which resiliency had to, I had to dig, dig deep and understand how do I adapt to moments where there's been stress or pressure or dark and unpleasant moments. Many of it, some of it I learned when I actually went here as an undergrad, mm-hmm. especially being a person of um, a marginalized group or underrepresented group, being young black male from the inner city, first gen. Um, that was something that was, um, it was, it was a lot um, transitioning here. Granted, I'm from Boston, but if you've gone to Boston College, as all of you have, you mm-hmm. can definitely tell that Boston proper is very different from Chestnut Hill, yeah. very different from Newton, Massachusetts. Yep. Uh, one thing that was really eye-opening for me is that I never went beyond Packard's Corner on the Green Line until I came to Boston College for the first time when I visited. Wow. Uh, for me to meet with um, now one of our vice presidents, John Mahoney. At the time, John was you know, the director of um, of um, admissions. So that was the first time I actually went beyond Packers Corner was just to interview with him and just kind of get an understanding of what Boston College has to offer and that sort of thing. Mm. So being moments in where microaggressions would happen, we didn't have the term microaggressions back then, but being in my dorm room and um, back in the day with CLX, I know it's CLX F now, uh, <laughs> being at CLX and um, seeing having to deal with microaggressions there, not really knowing what it was, just knowing I felt a certain way when someone said something or that snarky comment cut a little too deep mm. um, and, and having to have an engage in that was something that I knew it took me having to, in many ways, quote, grow thick skin and quote, mm. but your skin can only be so thick yeah. at some point it starts taking its toll. So I had to find different ways in which I could be able to navigate and build resiliency um, in terms of making sure I'm confident in who I am and my abilities and why um, Boston College and I entered this relationship of me accepting their 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 invitation for me to study here, and me applying um, to to want to study here to begin with. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I had to make sure I do was build a good friendship circle around me of folks who supported me, who cheered for me, became my cheerleaders. That was something that was really key for me to do, and to be able to connect with faculty, staff, and administrators who really saw an interest in me, mm-hmm. who really cared about me beyond my grades. I've had several faculty members who I'm blessed to work alongside with now. Um, who definitely took a, took an interest in me. It's funny, I have one faculty member, I don't want to give away her age or mine, but when, she, when we're in public, she always mentions about how, she's like, you know, Father James and I started here at the same time when he was 18 years old, I was a freshman, and I was in my first year teaching. <laughs> and they're still here, and they're tenured, and they're doing well. And wow. it just kind of makes me chuckle that she mentions it a lot, um, how we started here at the same time. And that's just an example of someone who I would meet up with during office hours, just kind of talk about my struggles mm-hmm. and how do I navigate the system of, um, of being at a predominantly white institution. And that's one of the misnomers about Boston. Most of my education from kindergarten all the way up through 12th grade, I had teachers of color, the mm-hmm. vast majority. The va- my formative teaching was mostly black teachers, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, black and Latino teachers. It wasn't until high school where I saw a little more white teachers. But for the most part, the vast majority of my teachers were teachers of color. So coming to Boston College was a huge culture shock for me. Um, so needless to say, it was one of those things I wrestled with. Wrestled with my, my faith identity. Um, come again, Catholicism was something that was still foreign to me. So things like the Common Cup was definitely mm-hmm. weird to me. <laughs> um, I remember, at, at the, I'm, not, I'm pretty sure they still, we still do it when we have our, our mass that happens, our orientation mass. And I just remember being in Trinity Chapel and the common cup coming around 
and just seeing the sea of black folks just kind of lean back, like I don't know nothing about this cup that everyone's mouth on, and just just see the sea of black folks just lean back, just pass the cup this way. I don't want to touch that cup because I don't know nothing about putting my mouth on this cup that everybody's putting their mouth on. Yeah. It was again, it was something I just wasn't exposed to, mm-hmm. and I would see my friends go to mass and. And, and connect with God and see, is that a place for me? Can I do this? Is it okay for me to go to mass? Um, I'm not Catholic. Is this is this all right? And having Father Jeff Butler just walk me through, like, yes, you can. You're welcome to this. Having Reverend Dr. Um, Howard McClendon just walk me through um, my faith identity. How can I take aspects of Catholicism and, and specifically the Jesuit identity? And how do I apply that in my life as a Baptist? Mm. And all of that formed me to where I said, okay, Okay, I can understand God's calling for me to come become Episcopal priest. And that definitely, all that formation led me to be where I am today as an Episcopal priest. Men and women for others, service to service to our entire communities is what led me to say, yes, I want to go and join the United States military and become a chaplain in the army. That stuff was unlocked for me at halftime. Mm. Um, again, I'm dating myself a little bit. I did halftime three. You know, wow. to have to three uh, <laughs> is when it was kind of unlocked for me of like, you're called to serve others in a way in which you may not fully understand. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was 25 is where I'm, it came to me like, wow, you're going to join the military. You're going to be an army chaplain. And I've been doing it for about 15 years now. Wow. So I mean, overall, and even with the nose moments, resiliency is key mm-hmm. um, for me to be able to go through because there were a lot of bumps in the road. As I'm telling you this story, um, it seems like, you know, it was just kind of smooth sailing, but no, it was a lot of bumps in the road. Um, accepting a call to the ministry, accepting a call to join in, to join the military um, um, right after, a little bit after 9-11. You know, mm-hmm. all the stuff is still going. So it's one of those, and even, even with the military, and um, it's, it's checkered past with African-Americans and people of color. So, I mean, it was definitely one of those sort of things I really had to wrestle with before I said, yes, this is something I, that I know God's calling me to do. Even with the Episcopal Church, they have a checkered past with, mm-hmm. um, with, with people of color, specifically African-Americans, knowing that this is where God wants me to be. So it took a lot of, again, building up my core people who I could connect with, who I could talk to, who I could be honest with. I had a seminary advisor. She's now um, a dean of a, of a seminary. She would say, um, you need to have friends you can swear with. <laughs> she explained this to me during my um, my mid-year review uh, during my MDiv, like mid-year through. So you gotta have friends you can swear with. And she said awesome. this to me, Bob, the representative for my for my denomination. I like this look of shock on his face. I'm like, how can you say this? I'm like, I can't say. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> and he's the he, he holds the keys to my ordination. Right. He said it to me again for me to affirm. <laughs> <laughs> and I just said, I gave like a non-committal, something like that. As the <laughs> but I mean, in the end, she was right. I, I needed, I needed that core people, my team to be like, James, you're doing great. It's all right. James, you're not crazy. This thing did happen. And these are the tools which we can help you work through that. And I think many of us have our tribes we could go to, our circle of folks. And it's not just like the same people you, you grew up with. It's just wherever. I got my work circle of folks. I got my army circle of folks. I got my church circle of folks and mm. just folks from all over who are my are my sounding boards. And that definitely helps me and making sure I also try to take care of myself, give myself some hobbies that I enjoy and that sort of thing. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, thank you so much, Reverend James. You've given us um, already such a great look at how you've been able to build resilience within your own life and as an individual. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to a little bit more about that community piece. Um, you've touched on all the people who supported you both at BC and outside of BC and um, navigating a, a challenging environment. Um, I'm wondering if you could provide some tips or advice to students who may be looking to form more resilient communities. Um, you know, how did you go about that? How did you find um, your people, especially here at BC? For me, I connected with folks who challenged me, but I also knew they cared about me. Mm. And a lot of it's how they spoke to me and how we interacted. And I think a measure of one's relationship with each other, with, with one another, is how do they deal with disagreements? Mm. I mean, everything's all good. We, we, we believe the same thing and we agree on everything. Everything's all good. But next thing you know, when that one disagreement happens, what happens to our relationship? And that's one of the things that I find that's incredibly difficult for our students nowadays and just our society as a whole right now. We're definitely, we're definitely in this moment where we're quick to cancel somebody. And yeah. granted, I know folks who are more on the extreme end of, um, of, of the political spectrum uh, from the right wing lens, it kind of hijacked the term. Oh, it's cancel culture, blah blah blah. But I think there's there's levels of truth to that. That I've seen relationships just disintegrate because of a disagreement, or folks who will go on social media and badmouth each other because there's a disagreement on this one particular issue. It's like, but this person loves you. This person cares about you. But you stop speaking to them. I've been on the receiving end of folks who um who I walked with in the midst of their pain or suffering. Um, hurts they had in their lives, folks who had drug addiction, folks who are going through divorce, folks who are going through issues with their children, that sort of thing, um, who didn't appreciate a post that I put on, let it be regarding Black Lives Matter or Women's Right to Choose and that sort of thing, who have disagreements with that, who cut me off, <laughs> who stopped speaking to me, who wants nothing to do with me, despite the fact that we walk together in their moments of darkness. And it's incredibly sad, but I come to realize that's just kind of state of affairs we're in. So I realized my new measuring stick and determining um, who's in my circle is how do we engage with each other when we disagree? Can we say, hey, you know what? I don't see eye to eye with you. You don't see eye to eye with me. Me still staying connected with you and you not being friends is not question. Is that allow me to question my worth or question who I am and question your love for me and my love for you? If that's the case, we can still we can still be connected with each other and have strong disagreements. Mm. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we can learn from the late Justice Scalia, as well as um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, how they were diametrically different from each other, <laughs> but they said they were friends. And I truly believe that. I mean, it's kind of hard for me to work with somebody for all them years and not be their friend. I mean, you could, but I mean, it's hard for me to, to see that they didn't like each other. Mm -hmm. She really said that they liked each other in the midst of their disagreements. And that speaks volumes. So, I mean, I wouldn't say engage in a relationship with someone who's hurting you. Again, if you're in, in a relationship with someone and the words that they say in their actions devalue who you are, then no, that's unhealthy. Don't, don't engage in that. Yeah. But I know that I definitely have a lot of friends and relatives who we don't see eye to eye on certain issues. And I mean, those are the issues we'll be flexible about. There are some issues that I'm not going to be flexible about that I can't say, yeah, we could still be connected because this particular, because this issue is one that's, that is hard for you to be flexible about. But that's maybe one or two. Actually, at this point, it's any disagreement, folks, especially. Folks don't even want to be connect with each other anymore. And it's incredibly sad. Yeah. But I'll say that's how I went about it. How do I connect with folks who I disagree with? Um, 
And if we have, if we still, again, if we still care about each other, we still love each other, we're still friends, we're still good. I know I could trust you to be honest with me. I don't need a yes man. I don't need somebody to tell me, yeah, everything's great. You're good. Don't worry about it. You're doing great. I need someone to call me out on, on my shortcomings yeah. to let me know, hey, man, this is where you're coming up short. And that helps me out. And I know you're doing it from a place of love. I'm a firm believer that if you truly love me, you should be able to give me, you should be able to critique me in a way in which you know that it's honest and I know it's coming from the heart and that it's coming out of love. And that's one of the things that I see sometimes. I don't want to go off the rails a little bit, but that's one of the things I see, especially within the climate we're in when, when our students criticize Boston College. Mm. And I'm like, I don't blame you. Criticize Boston College. However, do it from a position in which you love this institution because you're here. Yeah, You're forever married to this place. All three of y'all forever married to this place. <laughs> um, Ikram, you, you got a couple weeks left. You married yeah. <laughs> That degree on your wall, you can't change that degree. You spent four years here. This is it. You, you married to this place. And Franny, it's six years for you, right? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so, I mean, you're married to this place. So I can critique Boston College knowing that it's out of love. So mm-hmm. I can say, this is where you're coming up short, Boston College. And I want to be able to walk with you to how can we fix this? How can we fix this? It's easy for me to sit back on Facebook and criticize you. It's easy for me to go on Instagram or whatever social media to criticize you. However, if I'm not trying to sit the table with you, trying to help you figure out how can we make this work, then what am I doing? And I expect the same thing from my friends, my relatives, and my and my core group of people. If you're able to critique me about my shortcomings, then let's sit down and work about how I can either say this differently or something I didn't take into account or those sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. When we were kind of like crafting this conversation, thinking of our questions, I know on my personal end, I was hoping that this is where the conversation was going to go. Because I hear you talking about unity within difference um, and unity moving through difference and even becoming perhaps something different because of difference. And so, and I think you're also noting how challenging that can be at the same time. Um, So would, would you say that being part of a resilient community is sometimes mo- is moving through that difference together. Oh, absolutely. 100%. If you don't have that level of resilience, it's hard for you to be able to receive a critique that someone gives you mm. and, and really be able to understand that's coming from a place of love. So if my, if, if you're able to like, Fran, if you're able to give me a critique of something that I said or didn't say, or how I approach something, because I know, because I have my, I have resilience already. I've already understand the notion of resiliency and, and have built up my mechanisms for me to be resilient. And also knowing you, those things in tandem won't allow me to get my feelings hurt when mm-hmm. you say something or my feelings are hurt for me to be able to rationalize and understand that you're not coming from a place of harm. You're not trying to harm me. You're not trying to hurt my feelings, but you're just letting me know this is what it is. And I may not like how you said it, but you're you're being upfront and honest with me and you want you want to help me grow and be better. If I didn't have my resilient circle with me, if I didn't understand it and I didn't have a good relationship with you, I wouldn't have known that. So, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You have to have your circle, you have to have your circle of people with you and have your levels of resiliency up in order for you to understand that this is definitely coming from a place to love, not for someone who's trying to harm me or critique me or, or, or cast dispersion upon me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I'm thinking of your role here at BC as the multi-faith campus minister who is in charge of so many different religious groups, helping them practice their um, own faith and their own religion. Um, And I'm just wondering kind of like 
how you see that religious difference uh, and diversity on campus as such a, or if it's an intricate part of how we build a resilient community here at BC. It is, and the part that makes it tough is that well, within our within our religious communities, especially with our freshmen, our sophomores, that could be their first entry point for them to be able to build the community, build the resilient community is their religious um, affiliation. The problem that's tough is that if if they're not connected, let it be by virtual personality types or anything like that, they may not feel welcomed within that particular faith community. So then we run the risk of them just kind of floating out there and being alone and being isolated. My juniors and seniors typically realize that the faith community is not their only circle, mm. that the circle goes beyond that, that it's not just me and Hillel or me and MSA or me and Black Christian Fellowship or Asian Christian Fellowship. It's, yeah, I got my folks who I connect with with, with um, BC Alive or InterVarsity, mm. but I also got friends of mine in Kairos. I also got friends of mine in my dorm. I got friends of mine who I do intramurals with. I got friends of mine in my major, and I have these circles within, within that. So... But again, that usually takes a level of maturity and level of time here is when they understand that. Mm. Um, and the part that's tough is that, again, with our freshmen and our sophomores, when they come here again, that entry point is most likely that community. And we see it across the board that if it doesn't work out, many folks feel isolated and they start drowning here. Mm. So I mean, that's the part that I, that, that I find myself wrestling with a lot is how do I, how do I get our freshmen and our sophomores connected not to just the faith community, but to the BC community as a whole. Yeah, and then yeah. they can find their sliver within the BC community as a whole. So it's not just, I have my, I have my BC Alive friends, I have my Hallel friends, and that's it. I have no other friends beyond that. Or I have my Knights of Columbus friends and nobody else. It's mm. like, no, like I need you to expand beyond that in order for you to have a more well-rounded experience here at BC. And that's one of the things, especially I talk to my, my, uh, my students of color, my Ahana students. I specifically talked to them about that, uh, making sure they expand outside of the Ahana community. And I also explained that to my more conservative Catholic students as well, that I get it. We have a lot of different Catholic groups here um, that are a little more traditional in their, in their, and more orthodox in their understanding of Catholicism, but you got to expand beyond that. Mm-hmm. It can't just be Son of St. Patrick, Knights of Columbus, Una Voce, and nobody else. So like, no, you, you can expand beyond that. You can connect with um, other groups and be able to expand your perspective. And one thing that I also do um, that I try to make sure I do as much as possible is highlight those students who have done that, mm. who have expert, who have done that. Say, hey, listen, go talk to John. John can tell you his experience of being somebody who was in the Knights of, who was still very active in insert group here, Knights, Sun St. Patrick, Hallel, MSA, whatever. But they've also went on a Kairos. They also did it a root bay. They're also leader of this other organization. They also have friends who don't look like them, who don't have the same theological scope as them. I try mm-hmm. to highlight them as much as I can to show that it does work, that it's not just this random, this random guy who is the who's a campus minister here who tells who tells me that this worked for him forever ago. Yeah, and that, yeah. that this does that this this is a thing that still happens now. Yeah. Yeah, your message is timeless. It's like honoring the diversity within our own selves and connecting mm-hmm. to multiple communities based upon that diversity, which is, I hear you saying builds kind of like individual resilience, but then it also in some way builds a community resilience because yes. then you have these connections just across the, the entire campus of a bunch of different people who are, as we've been saying, are so incredibly diverse. 
absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to say, when you were talking about like those type of students, I was really that person, especially mm. first semester freshman year. I was very heavily involved in like the MSA. And like I would say, some of my closest friends were just in there. And I almost fell into that trap of just like being involved in that one thing. But thankfully, I had like a lot of other people around me who told me to join other things. And so mm. now I'm not as heavily involved. I still go to meetings sometimes, but it's mm. nice that I have those communities outside of it, because I could have very easily just had that one group and it would have been so different now, I feel yeah. like. So it was really cool to hear you say that. Mm. Hey, thank you for sharing that. No, thanks, yeah. Ekron. Mm -hmm. And kind of going off of that, I want to ask, how do you think BC's Catholic Jesuit identity impacts its ability to create a more resilient and authentic community for students of all faiths? I think one of the things that we do very well is within our retreat system. Let it be retreats through campus ministry, retreats through different departments, um, through intersections and that sort of thing. I think doing that and offer that moment of pause and reflection, out of the, literally taking us out of the BC bubble and being able to stop and pause and reflect, I think that's something that is key. I think talking about care personalis is something that we don't just say in campus ministry. I hear in the classrooms, any professors talking about it. Those things are, are, are key. Like understanding that you, you are a whole person you're not just the summary of your grades, your GPA, and what you did in high school and what you're doing now. You, you are more than that. You are multidimensional. And the understanding of um, care for the whole person, it's us making sure that we do what we can to help you grow as a person, not just as a religious person or as a Catholic person or as a woman, as a man, whatever, whatever. It's for us to understand how do we address the whole thing. And I think the retreat system is something that's very key. Mm. And one of the things that I realized is that many students come here, even our graduate students, that's who I learned it from, mostly our graduate students, um, come here never going, never have gone on a retreat mm. at all. Wow. We are very fortunate to, to be an institution where that's something that has urged, that is not just campus ministry, first year experience, again, different departments, our religious groups, everybody's doing retreats. It's hard for you not to get on a retreat here. At yeah. this point. You know, get the one that you want. I mean, if you want to get Kairos, hey, I know that list is kind of long for Kairos. <laughs> <laughs> But we're throwing retreats at you as soon as you walk into the front door. Yeah. And it's a lot more than it was when I came through, too. I mean, we have 48 hours and a couple others as soon as I walked in. And, half, again, halftime just started when I got here mm -hmm. um, as a student. So, I mean, we're constantly having retreats. But that moment to pause and to reflect on where you are in your life, in your, in, in your, in your academic study, but mostly where you are in your life at this point. And ideally, your life with the divine. That's something that is... And I think is really, really important for folks to be able to help form their, their specific uh, spiritual identity and their identity as a person of how does it connect with you with God and divine. It's something that we don't see at public institutions. And again, I've had grad students who come here who are asking us, what are we doing for grad students who, who seek this too? And I realized that I had the benefit of going here for four years and having that as an undergraduate um, student. So when I went to grad school, that's what I really sought. But I have grad students who come here who are like, this is what I want. Can I have a 48 hours? Can I have a half time? Can, can, I, can I go on a retreat, a silent retreat on a man recent retreat? So I know campus ministry specifically is looking at how do we address that? How do we connect with our graduate students? Us as well as um, the folks over in Amari, in Amari House have definitely been working on ways in which we're able to connect with grad students for that reason, and specifically with the, sp the specific schools. But I know we've mostly been working with the School of Theology and Ministry as well in terms of how do we, how do we be able to connect our graduate students to this because something that in our society we don't do we don't slow down we're constantly running 
to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. So I think that's one of the things that we do here at Boston College well, is that retreat model of that moment of pause, reflection, our language of care personalis, our language of um, service to others. Those things that we see it as tropes being in here, we kind of chuckle at it, sometimes we laugh at it. Like, okay, men and women for brothers, yeah, yeah, ever to excel, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> when, you leave, when you leave this place, you realize, wow, no one talks about this stuff on the outside. No one talks about this stuff. It's something that is very special here. And because we're very intentional in making sure that's something that we do address. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, thank you for that. I um, definitely share the sentiment um, coming from, I did not go to BC undergrad. And when I first started working in that office, a lot of the coaches um, were going on various retreats, 48 hour, all of them. And I really struggled even just to keep track of them all. And um, was really blown away by all the different opportunities that BC has for students to go on retreats. It's so awesome to see. And I think a lot of other institutions could also learn a lot from um, BC's model in that regard. Um, one other question we were wanting to ask you um, is about how you find community beyond the BC, um, the BC bubble. What does that look like for you in your adult life? For me, it's just connected with folks who um, have things in common with um, our common interests. That's the easiest way because it's hard. Is if, if at some point you hit this moment of adulthood, you're like, I got enough friends. <laughs> <laughs> I got enough friends. I got enough people. I ain't got enough time to, to connect. Um, I saw this meme. It was it was hilarious. It was like a adult friendships. Adult friendships be like it was like, hello, I'm not dead yet. Let's set up weeks <laughs> later. And I was, <laughs> I was like, yes, yes. I have friends who I supposed to connect. I have not connected with them for literal three, four months. Yeah, and I just yeah. sent them an Easter message. God bless you. I'm thinking about you. Thank you. We still haven't met since pandemic started. Like, yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> and things are opening up, but it's been a while. Um, you, you, throw, you throw family in a mix. You throw in kids in a mix. It's like, okay, we got to figure out ways where we can make this work. Um, Let's get the kids to play together so we can at least hang out for 20 minutes while the kids <laughs> run around. So you just you, you try to find unique ways, but for it's in the beginning, it's just one of those sort of things where you just find people who you connect with. Um, I have friends of mine who I met through work, who I met through my fraternity, who I met through um different religious-based organizations. And it's different again, it's different levels of friendship. There are some folks who you're just my buddy who I taught trash with. We watch football together, or we might watch pro wrestling, we might watch something together. And you, 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 that friend for me. And that's cool. Cause I'm their friend. For, I'm that friend for them. And there are others where I'm, you're the one I'm talking to about my struggles with my parish and, and my issues with, with the diocese. You're that person. You're the person who I go to where I'm trying to figure out, okay, what can I do to be able to make sure that my children and I are bonding as solidified as possible? Because I mean, we are a parent, your big jobs have to screw this up. I mean, that's really <laughs> what it is. Your job is I mean, make sure my child is formed well it becomes a productive member of society. I don't want to mess this up because when somebody does something crazy, everyone's like, where's their mama? Where's their daddy? I don't want to be that one. My kid does something crazy. Let me make sure, am I doing this right? Am I, am I training my kid up properly? Mm -hmm. um, so I, mean, you, you, I got those friends. So I'm like, hey, I got a daughter. She five, your daughter's five. Is your daughter doing this too? Okay, <laughs> all right, we're good. All right, all right, I'm not alone on this one. So it's a lot of that. Um, and I mean, the advent of Facebook, I mean, I'm barely on Facebook. I mean, barely. I went on it for the first time in about a year, um, a couple of weeks ago, because I realized that my Instagram was 
was posting on my Facebook. I didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> so I'm having random people in the office ask me questions about the Chris Rock show. I knew we're going to see Chris Rock right after the Oscar fiasco. Oh, yeah. And I was like, how was the show? I'm like, it was great. How do you know I win? <laughs> it apparently popped up on Facebook. But the irony is I put a post on it. I was like, yeah, I'll make sure I'll be on here a little bit more often. And I had tons of people I've heard from years like, hey, Rev, it's glad to see you, man. You know, keep putting some of that God stuff on here. We need to see some more Jesus on Facebook. And I'm just like, all right, all right, that sounds good. <laughs> but again, these are people who I probably won't see in forever, but I still care about them. They care about me. So it's 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 making sure that you end up finding your groove of folks who who like who are your friends. And adult relationships are very, very different. And adult friendships are very different versus your undergraduate years. It just so happens that um some of the folks who I came through undergraduate school with are people who I still connect with now. And again, those are the same ones who was like, okay, I see you in like in three months because you know and I know our schedules are not going to allow for us to hang out randomly. We'll hang out around some event. We know that. But they're friends who I've had since undergraduate school. I mean, I got two of my fraternity brothers um, who, um, who I came through the fraternity with here at Boston College um, who are my children's godparents. Mm, wow. You know, and that's something that that's something that, that keeps us connected because are they're my children's godparents. I've done their weddings. I appreciate mm. over their weddings. So it's these moments where I mean I see you forever, but okay, now we have a moment for us to actually connect. I'm doing your wedding. So you're gonna have to meet up with me to do cura or um pastoral, um sorry, premarital counseling mm. effectively for 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 my non-Catholic sister. Um they call it <laughs> cura. Uh, <laughs> so um so like you're gonna meet up with me to do your premarital counseling and we're gonna spend a lot of time together. And my relationship with you is going to go even deeper because I'm participating in the sacramental moment with you. Yeah. And that signal that solidifies our relationship. So even if I don't see you for six months, we're going to pick up where we left off. And that's just kind of the nature of it. And I, it's a hard transition um, that's hard to understand because you're so used to like your circle of friends who you hang out with, who you go partying with, who you spend, you have Sunday brunch with and that sort of thing. And then it's like you move off and I never see you again. It's like, no, it's just your friendship is just different because your time is stretched a lot more so now when you think about your career your family and that sort of thing so it's how they say they say adulting or something like that yeah something like that. <laughs> i have one quick follow-up to that and then we're gonna let ikram ask the last question for you mm-hmm. um but i'm thinking of um seniors like ikram who are about to graduate mm-hmm. and it's not the experience for everybody but there are those few who will move to Southie together and or different parts of the world together, right? And try to really hold on to this BC community. And I know from hearing stories, sometimes those communities are fragile. They're hard to keep because things change for people. You're not necessarily at, you're not at BC anymore, right? Um, So it gets difficult to hold on to those relationships, I think, as you have said, even in your later adult years. What would you say to those kind of, I guess, to the graduating class um, this year about keeping community, um, about friendship, wherever they might kind of go once they graduate? I, I guess it's kind of the, um, the harsh reality, the harsh truth. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. If your friendship is as strong as it is, it will, it will withstand time and space. Mm. It will. I don't have to, I shouldn't have to live with you in the same the same apartment as Southie um, in order for us to be able to have a really deep and thorough friendship. I just to be able to connect with you regardless of that. Yeah. Case in point, when I was overseas in Afghanistan, I had a buddy of mine who was two years beneath me 
um, at Boston College, um, woman who I care deeply for. And she's part of the sister order of my fraternity. I remember sitting in Afghanistan. She shot me an email. Her and I talked sporadically, not nearly as much as we used to um, during our undergraduate years. Because, again, I was two years ahead of her. And I went off to teach. And then I went off to Afghanistan. She reached out to me when I was overseas. And <laughs> it was maybe about uh, maybe like 6 o'clock at night for me. But it was like 6 a.m. for her. And she goes, I want to talk to you. Uh, jump on FaceTime right now. I'm like, okay. I jump on FaceTime. And she's like half sleep, rubbing sleep on her eye. Um, waking up in the morning, it's like, I just need to talk to you, James. How are you? Um, I want to make sure you're okay. We haven't spoken in a while. Yeah. Are you okay? How's Afghanistan? And I'm just like, wow. Mm. This it really, it really meant a lot to me that she took time out of her day, out of her early morning to say, hello, how are you? How are things? And just periodically, we'll just ping each other um, over time. And again, because she's part of the sister order of my fraternity, if I saw any of my fraternity brothers, like, hey, how's she doing? What's going on with her? Is she doing all right? And we'll just be able to keep keep tabs with each other, even if I'm not talking to you directly. So that's another thing. If you have that circle of friends and maybe some of them do go live in that apartment in Southie and you're not one of them, that's okay because at some point you'll still be connected to somebody else who could tell you how they're doing. Yeah. And it's just being being realistic and understanding that, again, if your friendship is that strong and is that deep, it will withstand time and space. And it's okay that your friendship may shift. And that's just the nature of it. I think too often we have this we have this, this facade of friendship means that all five of us are perfect friends. We all have the same relationship with each other. Yeah. And that my friendship with Dave is exactly the same, my, same as my relationship with Bob, which is exactly the same relationship with Harry. No, it's not. Mm. It's not because you're, people are people. So I may be, my relationship with Dan may be, uh, I may be more attracted to Dan because we have a lot more in common. That don't mean I don't like, I like Bob less. It just means that my relationship with Dan's different. But I can still be friends with the both of you. So being upfront and honest about that, that I may understand contact with Dan a lot more than I do with everybody else. But that don't mean, Bob, I don't like you. That don't mean we can't go hang out when we finally connect after the six or eight week layover. That don't mean I, I don't like you less. It's just one of those sort of things of being upfront and honest and saying that it's healthy for us to be able to go off and do our own thing and gain our own experiences to be able to bring that to our friendship because we're able to grow. So you taking off and going exploring, going backpacking through Europe or whatever you're going to do. And me doing what I'm doing, when we come back, we get start sharing these stories and we be connected. Because at some point, you're going to run out of stuff to talk about. <laughs> every weekend we're together. And every weekend we're together, we're going to run out of stuff to talk about. Because yeah. we live together, we do the parties together, we do brunch together. Use our brunch with me. So we, 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 we <laughs> all the same thing happened. What are we talking about? But, yeah. but I can tell you about the trip I just went on, you know, that you weren't there for. And I think you get a kick out of it, you know, mm. so that sort of thing. Yeah. Thanks, Rev. You're welcome. Definitely a hard question. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> Akram. Uh, I hope I can answer it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for our final question, we want to ask, what is your call to action? Um, how can BC students actively work to create a more resilient community here at BC? This is going to be a, another direct answer, and that's be honest. Mm. <laughs> be honest about, about, about everything in the sense of the masks that we wear. Like, that's one of the things that pains me about Boston College. And I, I know it's not just a Boston College thing. I know it's something that is across the board within higher education is that we feel this need to put this mask on to, to show perfection. 
And it's unfortunate because we put this mask on to show perfection. It harms who we are and it harms the people we connect with. Yeah. And that's something that's incredibly sad because we have folks walking around with this mask on and as they walk around with the mask, they're not being authentic to themselves. Never mind being authentic to somebody else. Mm. And that's something that, that that's harmful to, to the soul. Yeah. And that's the notion of the whole apostle syndrome and all that. Like it's something that I think is tearing away the fabric of a society, especially individualism. Mm. I have a, I mean, I got two children. I remember having to explain to my son, it's okay that you don't know how to do that. Mm. It's okay. Don't know how to do that. Cause it's your first time doing it. So you're not supposed to know how to do it. It is my job to walk you through it because I know how to do it. Mm. I came from, we stayed at a hotel a couple of days ago and there was this young woman who burnt the waffles. I know those waffle makers. <laughs> she messed the whole thing up. Young woman messed the whole thing up. And I remember just grabbing her after folks started peeling off the, uh, the waffle because she didn't spray it down with the, with the nonstick stuff. I just remember saying, young lady, it's, it's okay for you to say, hey, how do you do this? Mm. It's okay for you to look at me because you saw me doing it. It's okay if you look at me and say, hey, how do I work this? Yeah. Because it's okay if you're not to know how. And I forgot it was some story that came out. It's like, this is understanding that we can't be beginners anymore. Mm. We have to be experts at everything, which is terrible because you're not going to know things. So being upfront with that and saying, you know what? I don't know how to do that. Something as small as that, it's unfortunate that, that it's small, but it is. It because it becomes this big thing of I can't be vulnerable. I can't let you know that I don't know who that band is. I can't let you know that I don't know the answer to that question. I got to put this mask on like I know and I understand. It's unfortunate because, it's, again, it's harming you as a person because it questions you and your self-worth of, oh, man, I don't know that. Maybe I need to go study upon that. Maybe I need to go on YouTube. Maybe to go down the YouTube wormhole. Now I'm up <laughs> to 3 a.m. trying to figure out what that one thing was that in many ways if I just said I don't know what that is. They would have just told me it had been okay. So, I mean, that's one thing that we need to do is just be upfront and honest with each other. And two, not be afraid to have hard conversations. Mm. That's one of the things that is mind-boggling to me, too, is that there's this hesitancy to have conversations that may upset the apple cart. Yeah. That we don't want to do that because we're afraid that, you know, such and such would view us differently or such and such to care about us or... They may think that I'm trying to hurt their feelings, something like that. And we should be at the place right now where if I've been knowing you for the past three, four years, you should know who I am mm. and that you should know that I do care about you. So I could be upfront and be vulnerable with you and know that it's not going to end up on social media yeah. and know that's not going to end up um, being whispered when I walk by. And if unfortunately if that does happen, hopefully it doesn't. But if it does happen, at least, you know, now before you graduate and carry that person on throughout your life and it happens later. So at least it's something you can leave behind here if that's the case. So I mean, I'll say those are the two big things. Being upfront about the masks that we wear and be willing to have those difficult conversations. And I know it's a, it's a strong call to have, but I think you be, we become better people when we're willing to have that. I mean, the amount of strength that it takes for somebody to be a whistleblower. Mm. knowing that their names will get drawn dragged into the mud, knowing that their integrity could be questioned. It's hard. Yeah. The ability to challenge, you know, we all got them. That, that, that uncle, that aunt, that cousin who says things that are bigoted, mm. racist, sexist, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic, whatever. We all got that one relative, yep. that ability to stand up and like, Hey, that's not cool. Mm. 
knowing that you're going to get upset at me, knowing that you might be mad at me, knowing that you might not want to speak to me ever again. But my silence and letting it happen, it harms me because I'm sitting here listening to it. I can get up and walk out the room, but what's that really solving? Yeah. The ability to question it, the ability to have those tough conversations is what we need to do, especially when we come from a society where we kind of pride ourselves in this American um, exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have this bravado about America and that we have to, everyone has to have their stuff together. Yeah, but what if I don't? What if I don't have my stuff together? And I can say I don't have my stuff together and be confident. Like, you know what? I don't have my stuff together, but I'm still working on it. And feel better about myself internally as opposed to pretending I have my stuff together, knowing internally that I don't. And the pain of that happening and that constant walking on eggshells of what if someone knows that I don't have my stuff together? What if someone finds out I don't have my stuff together? And it's, it's sad. It's just undue pressure on the person. And it shatters your foundation and it shatters whatever resiliency you build. Yeah. So I hope that answers your question. It's kind of a lot too. <laughs> I think it more than answers. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. And, you know, I think we've only scratched the surface here. If we could talk to you for another three hours, that would be amazing. And then we would even <laughs> need more than three hours. But Reverend James, thank you so much again for talking with us today and for sharing your wisdom and your story with us. Just phenomenal. You're quite welcome. It's been a pleasure and a privilege and may God bless you all. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you all for listening. As we spoke with Reverend James Hairston about his story, his definition of resilience and how we might all strive to build a more resilient community out of and because of our religious diversity. We hope it was helpful for you as you continue to navigate on your wellness journey and explore what keeps you rooted and resilient. Personally, I will carry forward with me Reverend James's call for us to allow our individual and diverse identities to expand us and to expand the communities that we join and build. Resilience is absolutely in our diversity and our ability to connect across difference. And I think that's a valuable lesson that I have learned through this and we'll, we'll, we'll continue to think about. Tune in soon as we continue the conversation on cultivating and building resilience. We've had a blast recording the episodes that we are going to be releasing soon and um, we hope that you enjoy them too. So until then, bye now.